Hello, and welcome to the Oscar Went To, the podcast that looks back at a year in film and sees what films endured, what films didn't, and attempts to figure out why. Please give it up for your masters of ceremony, Max Salim and Nick Mestad. Well, again, some tech difficulties. You wanted to be a podcast host, though, Nick. I know, yeah. I, and that's just part it of comes it. with the territories. Absolutely. We're, we're learning as we go. Especially when our producers and interns are all out of town right now. Yes, indeed. I mean, usually we're surrounded by at least eight helping hands, which means yes, four assistants. And, and uh, an entire yeah. team propping us up. Yeah, the uh, Oscar happen. went to squad. First of all, welcome to the Oscar went to. I'm your co-host, Max. I'm your co-host, Nick. Good to see you, Nick. Likewise, Max, you again are doing, in the basement. I'm back in the basement, yes, mm-hmm. where I was last episode as mm-hmm. well. And as the temperature in a Minnesota basement as cold as I think it is? I do have a hand warmer I bought recently oh, good. to keep me warm down here. Good, good. I keep it close to my heart. I love it. We're doing a special episode today. I'm excited about this. Today is an emergency podcast. Pew, pew, pew. Yeah, I was hoping maybe Spencer can like throw like some sirens into the opening theme. I'm recording from a new place, which is uh, our office in Greenpoint, which speaking of sirens, the busy Greenpoint street below may provide that for us at some point in the episode. So if you hear any traffic, heater sounds of wrenches banging on pipes, that's just the charm of the office. Pay no heed. We should have, uh, yeah, we should have tried to time up our intro so there would be a siren going by and then we wouldn't need <laughs> to ask Spencer to do anything. Right. Yeah. It's just kind of the, uh, the natural, um, I don't know, cinema verite of a podcast. What am I talking about? All right. We're doing a, an emergency podcast. The way the emergency podcast works is like the whole idea of these deep dives is it gives each of us an outlet to talk about a film that we've freshly seen. And that's mm-hmm. always the best time to talk about a movie when you still have a little bit of that afterglow from seeing it, especially for the first time. And ultimately, as we've said before, we hope that these deep dives are a companion to the listeners. So hopefully they can watch the films along with us and listen to the deep dives and uh, ultimately, you know, give us some feedback and and keep this deep dive concept alive and well. But mm-hmm. Sometimes you and I see a movie that doesn't fit into the box of our Oscar went to year and we still want an opportunity to talk about it. So we are now permitting each other to occasionally call an emergency episode. This means we've recently seen a film that we feel excited to talk about or at least we want to talk about it. And it can Mm -hmm. be from released last weekend or it can be released 100 years ago. We do not need to follow the parameters of our Oscar went to schedule. And today's emergency deep dive is on 2013's The Great Beauty, directed by Paolo Sorrentino. Nick, you called this deep dive. Why did you call it? So I saw it for the first time this week. I watched it on a whim on the Criterion channel, and it's been a while since I've seen a film that I was truthfully, because we've had this emergency concept for a little while now, and I've been been very conservative with, with using it. I wanted it to be special. And this was the perfect one to do. There's, it feels like there's a ton to talk about on many different levels about this film. And this is a movie that both you and uh, a mutual friend of ours have brought up many times. Uh, so it felt the perfect reason uh, to, to kind of come together and, and, and call the emergency and, and kind of unpack this, this film that I'm glowing from. So, right. um, so, so I think it, you, you touched on an important point there. There's a lot to unpack with this film. So I'm going to throw a little disclaimer at the top of the episode. Episode, we are not going to get through this film in depth as we do with some of our other deep dives. I would al- also no. venture to say this is our hardest film to deep dive thus far. Would you agree? I would definitely agree. Definitely. Which is why we brought in some backup. The listeners don't know this, but quietly in the corner of the room right now, has uh, our first guest has been sitting patiently waiting for his introduction. So mm-hmm. let us introduce our mutual friend. Giovanni Fumu. Welcome, Gio. We're very excited to have you. Well, I'm happy to be here. I'm a fan of the show, so yeah, glad to be here with you guys. What uh, What do you do, Joe? 
I'm a filmmaker. I'm based in New York. Uh, and uh, as you, Max, surely know, I have a working relationship with you since uh, almost 10 years now. And um, yeah, I'm Italian. So yeah, let's talk about a great beauty, like Grande Bellezza. There. Thank you Ooh. for the um, thank you for the Italian title. It, it sounds much yeah. nicer. It and, sounds so uh, beautiful. Yeah, so we thought Joe would be a perfect uh, guest to have on this and maybe shed a little insight that our American eyes and minds couldn't uh, couldn't crack. Hopefully. Let's do it. Let's try it. Let's just get some some details out of the way first. The Great Beauty, like Max said, is from 2013. It was released in November of 2013 in the States. It's directed by Paolo Sorrentino, screenplay by Paolo Sorrentino and Umberto Contrarello. It's at a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes and 86% on, on Metacritic. And it was on many end-of-the-year top 10 lists, including the New York Times, Sight & Sound, Variety, and Empire. And it was the winner of the Best Foreign Language Film at the 2014 Oscars. Gio, just to get us started, why do you like this film? It took me a while to like this film, to be honest. Um, first time I saw it, it left me kind of speechless. Yeah. Uh, I was obviously much younger because I saw it in 2013, and I was not expecting anything like that because um, it was a surprising movie. A surprising move also from Paolo Sorrentino that not even his um, hardcore fan like of, the, of his previous work like I was uh, could ever expect a movie like that. So um, I remember the first time I saw it, I really did not get it a lot. Uh, mostly because, yeah, again, I was expecting something completely different. And the only take I had was like, all right, a great beauty, it's Rome. I got it. I agree. And man, a few days later, everything came back to me. Um, back then, I used to keep a diary. And, uh, and now, since I knew that we were doing this episode, I went back to look at it because I remember that two days after I saw the film and didn't really like it that much at that moment, two days later, I wrote like three pages of my diary where I write basically just about everything that is coming back, that this movie somehow gave me, and, uh, and I realized three days later how much I actually did like it. This is just a, <laughs> an intro to say it took me some days uh, to like it, and um, the reason, I guess, is because the main character is an artist, and I have the ambitions to be also an artist, and it spoke to me in, um, on that level. Uh, as an artist that is, never s that is not satisfied with life he's carrying, he knows that he can do more, but for a lot of reasons that I'm sure we will, we will uh, discuss in, in throughout this podcast, he cannot do it. Uh, but the problem is himself, and he needs to fix that uh, in order to move on and to be able to create again as much as you want and as much as he thinks he can. And I think this is a struggle that a lot of artists pass, by, uh, pass through, and... Um, so this may be the main reason why I liked it. Let me ask you another question, just to give us a little bit more context, is why don't you tell us a bit, you referenced you, you were a fan of Sorrentino before seeing this film. What, where does he stand in contemporary Italian cinema? Is he like the number one guy, or is he like a niche culty guy, or maybe you can shed a little light on that no um paolo sorrentino right now is <laughs> the key holder of italian cinema right now obviously but this is coming after the oscar obviously after like you know two season uh, of uh, an hbo drama um the young pope and the new pope but back in the day sorrentino was surely the most innovative filmmaker in the country already from his store film the consequences of love he established himself as someone who has like a really strong language, let's say, in a cinematic universe uh, that no one else in the country had. Um, foreigner, foreigner started to love him already from his earliest movies. He was in Cannes with all his films. And yeah, he had the guts also to make a movie about the most controversial political figure uh, in the 70s and 80s in Italy uh, called uh, Giulio Andreotti. And he made Il Divo in 2008, if I remember, which is a crazy, psychotic, biopic film about uh, Giulio Andreotti. So yeah, he's definitely, definitely a filmmaker like no one else in Italy, even before this film. So I was really looking forward for this film because I knew all the amazing actors he had cast for The Great Beauty. Uh, so uh, as an Italian, obviously, I was looking forward to see this dream team of cast. And the reason why it surprised me, because this film has a plot, I figured out later, but 
not it's not really plot centered and all his films before were all like somehow strongly plot uh, oriented so uh with this film he definitely uh started somewhere else something else in his career and in my in my opinion he got enlightened from the great beauty on it's hard for me as a i'm not super familiar with italian cinema other than the very broad internationally known films like Fellini which this movie reminded me of but I couldn't tell if that was just because that's the only really other Italian film that I know or if it is actually particularly like you know an eight and a half sort of movie what really struck me about it was was this many different things about it but just the structure of it and how it seems to be structuralist even though there is a structure there but it is very meandering it is full of vignettes yes there's a plot but it's also dreamlike in terms of just the seemingly non sequitur things it's showing you time after time. Can you can you speak to is this is this as unusual and kind of singular as a film in Italian cinema as it is as I sort of perceived it because it seems it seemed very radical kind of in every way. Is is that is that kind of a universal feeling? Fellini did it. <laughs> Fellini did it in the sixties at the top. He's considered one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Uh, so uh, it makes sense that he was way ahead of his own time. But no one else ever tried to repeat something like that before Sorrentino did. And that's that's stupid in my country. I remember like people like obviously to criticize something that is new and innovative, but, uh, and the cheap way they were criticizing Sorrentino with The Great Beauty was that, oh, he's a copycat of uh, La Dolce Vita by Fellini. And, and that was sort of stupid in my point of view, because yes, obviously there are a lot of like homage, if you want to say, or there's like an inspiration that is truly coming from there. But I read the fact that thanks to The Great Beauty, people are talking again about a movie like La Dolce Vita or Fellini in general. It's already like a great thing that he did. People now can go back and look at the old masterpiece because someone else revisited and made it contemporary and original too, I would like to say, even though, yes, okay, some, some shots may, may look similar. The characters is, um, is a journalist as well. Uh, it's in Rome uh, and the great beauty of Rome. Also, Dolce Vita is a movie about the great beauty of, of Rome. But still, um, no one has ever tried to get close to it. And also, Paolo Sorrentino is a very smart guy. And when he won the Oscar, for example, the first name, he said, I want to dedicate this prize to my biggest source of inspiration. And Federico Fellini is number one person he named in the Oscar stage, even before his wife. Uh, so this is, was also because, I guess it was also like a sort of... Uh, fuck you <laughs> to all the Italian critics that somehow criticize him because he copied Adolce Vita and he clearly said, no guys, I didn't copy because I'm saying to everyone that is my inspiration and thanks to the inspiration I could make this film, uh, which has almost nothing to do with Adolce Vita, uh, if not just love and respect for it. There you go, Nick. You're, you're flexing your well, cinema history knowledge a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I really like this film, obviously, and kind of just to piggyback off what you both have just said about it and I hope this isn't redundant I don't I don't know that too many people would compare this film to Terrence Malick's work and I also think a lot of people wouldn't like that comparison but the way I'm going to draw a comparison right now is that like I like to call this type of filmmaking a bit impressionistic and so it's not plot centered and it doesn't feel the need to move its way through a story the way a traditional film does. And some people are frustrated by that or find it boring, but I think that it like creates a, a tremendous sort of Rorschach effect where it gives you an opportunity as the viewer to pour so many of your thoughts, experiences, um, and, and your, your own feelings uh, into the film. It gives you an opportunity to bounce yourself off of the images you're seeing in front of you. So that's not a question for anyone, but just a general observation. Yeah, I agree with it. I never thought about it. So this is kind of uh, new, new, the first time I I, um, I tried to imagine this concept. And I, I kind of agree. I have to say that the way they make film, Malik and Sorrentino, uh, is so different. And if Malik is Renaissance, Sorrentino is pop art, I believe. But then... This is just the way maybe it looks and the way they use different technique in their in their film. But I guess in, at the end, the essence is similar. It's true. Definitely. I can see I can see where, where you're coming from. Well, Nick, as the um, the the caller of this deep dive, 
you know, go ahead and drive us a little bit. Where, where do you want to take this conversation? So I watched this for the first time this week and I've already rewatched the opening club scene once. The way this movie starts, you know, the opening shot in the canon, and then we kind of just see the, we don't know where we are. We don't know what we're seeing. To me, it's extremely beautiful, but it's also disparate and you're, it makes sense and you are following it, but it is just kind of scattershot. Then we get to these, to this absolutely pumping rooftop party and we're seeing what we later learn are kind of the players of of the movie um but as we're as an an audience viewing it for the first time it's just sort of character and another colorful character and another colorful character uh it's really visceral and happy and intense and great and then we get the after after kind of getting used to this rhythm of seemingly randomness, compelling randomness, we get that the, the opening shot, the introductory shot of our character that is unmistakably our main character. We know that, and it's and that's the thing that yeah, got how me to beautiful this the shot scene. is! Isn't it it's, crazy? It's <laughs> it's it's one of the best moments in the film. It 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 cracked me up. It it true. It made it seriously. It reminded me of an old friend of mine because the main actor has a resemblance to it, like an old friend of mine. And I wanted to recommend this to, and I'm not in touch with the old friend anymore, but I literally like wanted to reach out to the old friend and recommend this movie because of this opening shot. Cause I'm like, it's so funny. It's so deeply felt. And then like, it continues to do that with this. We stay in this club for what must be Yeah, you already be love your, ca- I mean, you already Jeff Campardella yes. is a hero, even before he opens his mouth. Yes. Like- <laughs> I mean, just a tr- to turn around and just have the biggest euphoric grin on your right. face with a half smoked cigarette, cigarette dangling out of your mouth. He's in heaven. And He's in And there's like heaven. a perfect music clue and like, yes. and then the camera starts to spin around his head. <laughs> I mean, this it's, is, man. Uh, this you, you still don't know the, his name, but you still don't know his name. Yes, but yes, already, yes. You're already like, oh God, who are you? Right, Max, who sorry, is this what, fucking what guy? Saying? And yeah. this is a, te- I mean, this is a testament to the the filmmaking itself. Because what's so interesting about this is that we've seen uh, up until this point maybe a hundred all unique characters, right? And, mm-hmm. But when Jeff turns around, it's unmistakably through the filmmaking technique and through the guy's look. It's unmistakably oh, our main character, and you already sort of like him. Yeah, so what an achievement just to get to that point. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Oh, God. And then that's, I mean, Cause the scene continues for five, ten minutes. And guys, I mean, and don't forget, don't forget that before, I, I hope, like, the audience will remember, um, don't forget that before this scene, there's that crazy surreal scene but with the with the Japanese tourist and a Japanese guy dying yes. getting an heart attack right before that. Like what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. I don't like it's it's beautiful so and it works. The Jap is still not there, still not on screen. No. But he built so much, you know, he built so much before that okay, then he jumps from person to person, scene to scene. You're waiting for the guy. You're really waiting for the guy. And when he shows up, it's like okay. There he is. Wow. Didn't know I was waiting for him. And I, I, already I, seen, I already seen so much life before this, and now here we go. Yes, and then that is immediately followed by this, like, uh, kind of, for lack of a better term, line dancing to like club music, and then it just it it slows down, and he steps out, and we get this slow dolly into him, and then this the music kind of fades away, and we get this voiceover that is extremely it's hypnotic and yeah it's hypnotic and how another another thing that struck me is how unexpected it is right you will never never expect in that moment mm-hmm. the voiceover to say that about like the fact that he that the thing that he loved the most when he was a kid was the smell of the old people's house and mm-hmm. then he introduced himself we finally know his name we know that he's a writer and we know that he was he thinks that his des- destiny his destiny is to become a writer but mm-hmm. before, it just says something so peculiar that you would never <laughs> expect him to say in this moment in the middle of a party and in such an epic moment. So, but this is what Sorrentino is. He really makes surprising decision over and over and over. And he puts together images and sound that, that no, one, no one else could think of. And um, that's what makes him unique, I believe. As a native Italian, do you know how to do this dance that they're all doing? Actually, the music, the sounds is uh, Spanish. It's like a Latino music. It's not an Italian song. Oh, in that okay. specific moment, in that specific moment, it's like a, 
I think it's a Mexican song because also, you know, you see like five guys with the sombreros. Oh, yeah, mariachi band. Right, mariachi yeah. band. So that specific song is like a Latin American uh, dance. But I definitely know the previous one. A far l'amore, a far l'amore, a far l'amore, comincia tu. I definitely know that song. Uh, the song. The song that plays there is a remake of a famous song from the 60s uh, by Rafaela Carra. I love it. it going, I mean, just even mentioning that mariachi band, which I had forgotten about for a second, the opening sequence is almost this flood, like the, the club sequence specifically, is like this flood of the characters and just this exuberant energy. Like the mariachi band is like a great example of like, here's a full on mariachi band in the middle of when we're getting like raging club music on a rooftop. Like it's just... It, it, it's overflowing with life, this sequence, and it's such a powerful way to start the movie. It's such a bold statement because then after this rooftop party, that's when we finally get the title kind of in the night skyline. And on top, it, of, it, yeah. on top of the iconic martini sign, which is not there anymore. Okay. See, this is good because I don't, I don't, to me, I, the, the landscape I'm com- is completely alien. No, the martini me. sign is an iconic is an iconic yeah. sign there. It's actually present also in Fellini's film back in the day, so it's there since the oh, 60s. Wow. And, yeah. well, and here on the Oscar went to, Nick, we love when the opening title arrives late into movies. I think <laughs> oh we've my talked God. about this before. You said in oh, yeah. uh, about The we're, Departed. I, I, we're, we're, you yes. know, I, I told you I'm a fan of the show, so I listened to that. I threw it. That's incredible. The deeper in that a movie title is, the better. And this excludes, I don't particularly like it when the title is at the very end of the movie. This is a whole subtopic that we can really have a fun conversation. But yes, kudos to, to The Great Beauty for, for dropping it in like 10 minutes in. A beautiful, because it's, it's bold. It's bold. It basically is just saying like, oh, we're just getting started. Like, holy shit, as an audience member, I've already been hypnotized and and have like multiple moments that I'm like, this is, this is really cool. And, and now the title's coming, like now we're getting started. It's a very, when done well, it's a very hopeful, exciting thing as an audience member. And it certainly was here. That being said about the opening sequence being kind of the explosion of characters and, and culture that it is, in my view, it's sort of the rest of the movie is sort of all of these elements in this first scene coming ashore and the main character sort of with more of an ennui and more reflective nature, kind of meandering through it and picking it apart and bouncing up against it. And, and that, that, that's the way that like, if the opening sequence is a firework, the rest of the movie is, is him kind of walking through the, this, you know, debris of the fireworks. And perfect. Yeah. I, I, that's, that's a, that's a very good point because uh, as you, you don't know yet when you see the opening party scene, mm-hmm. but you actually see all the guys, you see all the characters and you, you know, you already see that like there is the guy that is uh, saying something to the girl, he's dancing, uh, <laughs> yeah. which is insane what he says. That guy speaks in dialect <laughs> in that moment, but he's just looking at the girl and saying like, uh, you know, like, come <laughs> on, I don't see the translation in English, but. And- I, I brings up a point I want to talk about. And that is that Sorrentino's ability to create richness in, I mean, literally every character you see on screen. These extras, these background are not just, uh, we need some people standing in the background to just like fill up, grab some people and put them in the background. Uh, Each each one of these characters seem uh, carefully and calculatedly put together. It seems like designed. designed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And and when and then to take that one step further throughout the film, we often will just take a small peer into a, a seemingly random person in this world's life, whether it's the couple that doesn't stop ma- kissing for a week or um, the girl in the car outside of the strip club. Sorrentino, like he lets us look at all these people long enough to really, truly wonder about them. But then he cuts away before he can ans- before any questions are answered, and it 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 gives the f- you know other films don't do this. Other films show you a a, a a a character or a shot for a reason to move the story forward somehow, and this fleshes out this world and makes it seem like life, maybe a heightened reality of life, um, but it makes it seem more lifelike. It's really well articulated what you just said. Just watching this, in in everything we're saying here, to me, watching the movie, you're just so invested in it and it's so impulsive and present 
it's really crazy watching a movie that has a very compelling trajectory to it and yet zero traditional story elements that we're used to. Uh, whatever the machinations, story machinations are that are underneath the hood of this this car, it, 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 it's like it's got to be like the equivalent of like if the normal movie we're used to watching is a Ford F-150 engine, what we're looking at here is like a specialty engine from like a, a, a hyper specific, rare, beautiful sports car from like 1960, just like something so exotic and different. And it's really, as with any movie that's like really radical in its style, it really opened my eyes to how different movies can be and and uh, many different characters and just the way they operate in this movie is, is kind of a, maybe the best example of that where we're getting the dirty look from the younger handsome guy in the, in the, you know, uh, general store. And we're seeing the couple kissing forever. There is a magical realism in this movie that is certainly contained, but it is magical realism. And that couple making out all the time is believable, but it reminds me of like something like hundred years of solitude where it's like, it's like the, there's characters that we see and, and, and situations that are, there and then gone that seem to be abstract and representative of a concept and it's so rich and it makes it makes like the whole movie feel like every pocket of it has this poetry and sort of universe in itself that could be you want to kind of stay there and you feel like there'd be so much to unpack and explore if you just stayed with the couple who can't stop making out for the past week or it's like what's that dude's story who was angry at the at this at the corner store it's it's the richness of this movie it's hard to think of of one that matches it and and also what what makes me want to rewatch this movie and think that it'll only get better with time and discoveries will only increase with each viewing magical realism to me is kind of the the nice word i was searching for uh because this movie feels like it has it and 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 then some let's talk about just kind of the first thing we don't need, we're not going to go through this movie chronologically because that would defy and not do service to, to, to the film itself. But let's talk about the opening art exhibit that he sees. And then the last one that he sees. Now, when I watched this movie, it took me a long time of reflecting on this to kind of like piece it all together. But there are two distinct difference differences in kind of this opening kind of dress down that he gives this performance artist and then this, the 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 picture, kind of the exhibition of the guy who's had pictures taken of him every day of his life. Like these are very different reactions that it, it evokes out of our main character, and certainly reflective of the change that he's gone through. Is this worth talking about, or did I just like kind of describe what? Was no, I mean, I, this this was something that I I I primed you with a little bit, and and I noticed yeah. with my most recent viewing that like. This film, I've seen it a few times, and you know, the the first time I saw it, I felt like it had so much to say about life. And the second time I saw it, I thought, well, you know, maybe this is kind of about nothing, and it's and it and it's covering this nothing with a beautiful facade of magic hours and steady cam shots, and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And then this was my third viewing now, and th that that feeling that it it does have a lot while obscure a lot of the times it does have a lot to say about life and I was thinking that this this feeling I was having is probably similar to the one Jep is having when he and it, and it also kind of speaks to a duality that the film is always presenting us with but but specifically he gives a good dress down to the performance artist we see at the aqueduct aqueducts in Rome and Nick, mm -hmm. we also love a good dress down on the Oscar one too, as we were talking we about. We do. Last this week. is two episodes in a and, row where and, we relish a dress down. And Jeb gives us a, a few pretty good ones here, but he sort of <laughs> accuses. He gives the performance artist a, a dress down in so many words, a, 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 accusing her of trading charlatan tricks and, and pretending that they're sophistication and that they're deep art. That if he can't understand it, that's his own problem. But at the same time, later in the film, he sees a much simpler form of art, which is the the guy who's put together a photo exhibition of a, a single 
photo portrait of him of every day of his life. And Jep is really moved by this. And in the, you know, I, I am grasping at straws a little bit here. And like I said at the beginning, this is a tough film to pin down in a lot of ways. But somehow that contrast between these two um, stories Jep is writing was somehow symbolic of the film itself in its in its sophistication, but also in its simplicity. Do you guys, am I, like am you, I you, touching you, a nerve you, at all here? You mean, because it, you mean in the beginning, he's a bit, uh, he doesn't care. He just moved through life careless and hopeless. But the more he's getting towards the end, I think, I think if I will remember when he goes to the second exhibition we are talking about with the pictures, he already met Ramona, right? He, uh, mm-hmm. he already had, um, a few things in his life that had changed his, um, yeah, his outlook. Yeah. Well, you know, and, uh, so, so maybe it's, it's more ready, uh, when you see that, uh, exhibition, which is obviously a total different level. The, the, the take I got was like the Jeff, Jeff is doing a job, a simple job for how good of a writer he is. Um, just to, you know, just to, 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 to not to be unemployed, but not because he has the money. That's the vibe I got. And, um, and he gets different, different experience with his job. And most of the time they are uh, <laughs> bad. Uh, also, Jeff is an intellectual person, so he can definitely recognize if someone is a charlatan, like the first one. But also because he's an intellectual, you can recognize the good, the good, the good things um, and, the, and the good art, like in the, in the uniqueness of this exhibition that he sees with the photos. But the thing, the thing is that in that, in, in, in that part, in front of his eyes, he really sees he already talked about time passing by. He already, talk, he already said that after his 65th, 65th birthday, he uh, realized that he cannot waste time anymore for the things that he doesn't want to do. And when he sees these pictures, it's so clear. Like You have in front of you the life of a person every single day, and you really realize, you see it, that the day you're living right now, the present, this specific moment, is the, old, is the youngest is the youngest that you that you that you will ever be in your life, and uh, but also the oldest you ever been, but yet the youngest you will ever be. So somehow this experience with all the other stuff he passed through um, previously, I guess, made him being more like moved. There's a ton of great scenes in this film. Nick, throw it just uh, you know we're not gonna be able to touch on all of them, but throw throw another scene you want to kind of break down a little bit out there. Yeah, I mean, I love the the ten year old girl who is taken away and like not allowed to play, and then just is throwing the paint on the blank canvas and ends up making a beautiful piece of art. I also rewatched that sequence, and it's funny because what I mean, this that movie scene, that scene is incredible. So the way, but let's talk a little bit about the way it opens. It opens with like a close up of this old girl, this old lady with a character, the film that we got. To, we know this girl. We already saw this girl like drinking champagne in Jeff Terrace. Now we see her close up and like a knife basically almost hitting her head. And then we realize that there is like, a, we, we, we track back and we realize that there is like, how you say in English, the guy that threw the knife to. Uh, and uh, yeah, so, and you see that. And then the, the knife, they have like paint on it and, and they are going against a canvas and the canvas becomes surely something they will sell for God knows how much money. But then somehow the, 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 the Remember, like the, the canvas open, and mm-hmm. in the background there is like a console, and there is a DJ. It's such a crazy setup already for. Well, and then right after that, I think it's right after that we get the kind of it's in like a foyer, and it's the girl and two other kids her age playing, and then the adults kind of reprimanding them that they need to go to bed, and she expresses that she just wants to play, and and then he like grabs her and not allowing her to do that and she's really upset watching that as an audience you don't know the context of that you're watching the scene and it's clear that the girl is like being reprimanded whatever and then it's revealed that she's this artist and this movie does this multiple times where it'll show you the audience something that is non sequitur whether it be soccer player in underwear doing incredible tricks in a small apartment and then the next scene, it's explained that this is this is this woman's first first time, and and he wasn't that great, but whatever, and it's justified. This happens again when we see the ocean on the ceiling, 
uh, the first time. And then the second time we get a boat coming across the ocean and the ceiling. And for me personally, I'm like, that's a little, this is getting a little too much to have the boat cutting across the ceiling now. But then that goes into the next scene, which is Jep in this, in this scene from his teenage years where it's Jep in the ocean a boat is coming towards him. He goes under and he comes up and he's his young self. It's this elegant, I, there's, there's gotta be a name for this, but where, and it's, I'm going to say it's even in the first line that we get from Jeff, going back to that moment where he says to this question, my friends answered pussy and I answered the smell of old people's houses. The question was, and it's like that is an editing technique that we see repeated again and again through the movie. And it's so cool and so elegant. And it does require and train the audience to just trust that, hey, this is like a crazy splash of nonsense that I'm seeing. Oh, here's what it was. And it just creates this circus almost feeling to everything and it's really beautiful and to bring it back to this scene it's it's evident in the knife throwing and the girl as the artist sort of being reprimanded because it's 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 so cool and recontextualized on the second watch in multiple viewings as well but i love it you know there's a lot of meta qualities about this film and just one i'm going to point out really quick is when geo said at the at the top of this podcast that sorrentino is the filmmaker that really holds the keys to Italian cinema. And mm. he's the only one who can access the types of locations they had in this film. Mm. And very literally, we have this figure that we see uh, who has all of the keys to Rome. <laughs> and yeah, no, absolutely. Just... Like the key, the key master, I guess, is Sorrentino. Right? <laughs> but it was like a sort of, uh, I mean, that's just me speculating, but it might be a sort of biographical <laughs> touch in there um he could do he could do he could do what he wanted in rome they, he had access to things that um you would not have normally i just wanted to just jump on the uh, on the heels of the scene nick brought up that we we segue into this yeah. insane journey through all of these old ancient buildings by night with jep romana and and the keymaster i found it pretty satisfying because uh, when you walk around a city like rome or I mean, it happens also in New York, I mean, in Paris. When you walk around this city uh, overnight and you look at the building maybe by yourself and a bit um, melancholic or stuff, you can't stop wondering, at least this is what happens to me. I wonder what is inside that building or what's in there and what's in there. It's really like a sort of a fantasy that uh, you have. And somehow, you know, the fact that Jap could make it happen thanks to the key master and he could have like the date of his life <laughs> mm. uh, just strolling around places that has been maybe closed for centuries. Um, yeah, it's sort of a sort of a fantasy realized. So yeah, it cannot, it can never get more surreal than that. Obviously, that's one of the most surreal scenes of the whole film. Um, so this is when I believe that you know the magical realism Nick was telling was saying before, which is magical realism, but it's also fiction. <laughs> Here, really, well, it, pu it pushed to an extra level, I would say, and it becomes real, uh, which is great. And with my producer brain working just for a moment here, I like to imagine that like the uh, Rome Chamber of Commerce said to Sorrentino, you can shoot wherever you want. And uh, so they were like, OK, how do we how do we cram as many of these places together as possible? Let's make the, the key, the key master a character. Yeah, I mean, and just like think about like that key master as a character. He's I mean, just and a then key maybe, master. Maybe, maybe we, we discover later that everything is built on a set. But but no, yeah. I, I, I'm sure I'm sure he had access to. I mean, I, I also you can see online all the location he had access to. Um, it's not what, like when he did. I, I know for a fact that when he did uh, the young pope. Uh, and the new pope, obviously, the Sistine Chapel was like a set. It was a crazy set, uh, but, you know, they rebuilt everything on stage. Um, but still, like, yeah, so surely uh, Sorrentino can do what he wants in Rome. I don't know if it's exactly like it happened in, in, it, uh, in Italy in the 60s, where when Fellini represented maybe the strongest um, made in Italy uh, sort of brand that, you know, Italy wanted to export abroad and, 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 and we are, the country was extremely grateful to Fellini's um, films because obviously that was, um, that was a perfect image that was, you know, that was going all around the world. So every, each time that he was making a new film, the whole country really put a lot of um, effort to have him like able to 
to do whatever, basically whatever he wanted. I don't know if Sorrentino is at this level yet. It's also like different time in history, but you know, again, I I'm pretty confident he is. I'm I'm looking at the Wikipedia right now. This was all actually shot in Burbank. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait. I had to. I could not resist. I wanted um, to say on on the heels of that, Nick, um, that this film does have a dreamlike quality to it, and it and that helps promote this magical realism you've been speaking about. And I think one really effective thing um, is that the film is almost always set when the sun is going down, when it's nighttime, or when the sun is rising. Mm. And not Damn. only does that make it super beautiful, uh, but it also it, it, it yeah. contributes to this vibe we're talking about, and it contributes mm. to us as an audience buying in to the tricks Sorrentino likes to be playing. And the whole thing just feels very organic. These bizarre totally. things. Also, also, feel Jeff, organic. also, Jeff says it that he doesn't know what to do with the morning. Is not right. He says it in a, right. it's a scene where he, when he speaks with his maid, and he's like, "I feel lost in the morning. I don't know what to do." Usually, he wakes up at three p.m. and starts. So, I guess it's also, you know, the, the jet lag of the film. Uh, it's following Jeff's yeah, life. Yeah, totally. <laughs> good well, it feels like that. Yeah, that's like an element that satisfies three different layers of things where it's true to, to Jep's lifestyle. It adds exactly what Max said, this dreamlike quality and Oh, nice side effect is also fucking gorgeous. So it's like a very nice three birds, one and, stone and, and, sort of thing. But also, you know, in another level, I believe that this makes it or made the film also more likable. Uh, to a younger audience too, because a younger usually usually it's not a seventy-five, a sixty-five-year-old man who has this lifestyle, but it's a younger right. person. Right. And even That's though you don't, you never see, even though you never see um, youth in the film, you you dream of youth because Jeb dreams of youth every single minute of his life, but you never see it. If you think about it, like the film is all about like middle-aged man, I mean. Uh, but, you know, the film was somehow, this effect was obviously um, in Italy, but I, I am sure also in other countries, it was very successful among young, young people, like 20s, uh, in, in their 20s. And I, and, and I, and, and I guess it's, it's a lot because of that. It's a, it's a lot because the lifestyle that we see in the, um, uh, in the film, uh, it's close, it's pretty close to also, you know, what young people, want to have or somehow in a smaller part they, they, they do have yeah yeah listen to what you're saying it's sort of like the great beauty is is to partying as the irishman is to someone who spends their life killing people <laughs> where it's like this very deep reflection of of how one spent their entire life like i uh, like i said at the top of this episode this film is dense to say the least and we you know Maybe we could do a whole podcast where we just go scene by scene and week by week through this movie. But for in the interest of time, um, I'm sure there's plenty of things we can both, we all three of us could talk about things that we like about this movie. Is there anything that didn't really work for you, Nick? You know, we'll go to our classic nitpick uh, section of our deep dives. Once the saint arrives, we're, we're kind of, let's wrap this up. And... Geo, are you? Is this consistent with your feeling, or or? Ah, uh, no, it it's not a flawless film. film flawless obviously, film. Uh, also, I had some, I have some issues maybe in the last in the last part of the film. Uh, just you know, after there is a scene where uh, Jeff is in um is in an afternoon party, it's a wedding, it's outdoor, and at that moment he meets again. At first, he meets um, a cardinal. He meets the cardinal. Uh, the cardinal always speaks about food, <laughs> and it's obviously not the. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't look like uh, the, the most spiritual <laughs> cardinal ever. But somehow, that's uh, that's that's how Sorrentino wants to portray the figure of the cardinal. And Jeff approached him, and he um, he asked him. He said that he has some question about spirituality. So we can see that already Jeff is starting to question um, himself and to question to question something else that before he would have never done. So that's already like a sign of, of his change, I imagine, even though, you know, obviously the Cardinal doesn't answer because he's distracted with something else. And right after he started dancing with Stefania again, Stefania is the woman 
we never talk about that scene, but also that scene was incredible uh, when uh, you know they are when he when he is with all his friends in his terrace, and um, Stefania is that woman that starts to say how how great she is and like how many things she achieves in her life and how how much she cares about her family and about her kids um and she started to broad about the books that she wrote and, and everything and and jeb somehow after listening to her you know uh, replies and uh, tells her actually that she is exactly like everyone else and she had a she had a break a breakdown in that scene and she and she leaves and uh, and now in the scene I'm talking about in the wedding towards the end of the film they meet again and it seems like that the film could end there even though we have a very open ending Sorrentino already gave us some sort of hints to understand Jeb changed and for me the film I don't want to say that it should have finished there because I really like the final scene at the lighthouse but between this scene I'm talking about the wedding and the final final scene at the lighthouse. Well, so like, I mean, no, but just, essentially yeah. what you're saying is that we're all in agreement here that somehow between the wedding scene and the final scene at the lighthouse where we get our resolution, where we get our, 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 our true ending of the film, something is not clicking on all cylinders like the rest yeah. of the film is. Yeah. Why will this scene? Okay. I understand. We can't, we can't analyze the the great beauty asking us too many whys but that that saint going to Jeb Gambardella I just can't understand how <laughs> a figure like that could go to the dinner with Jeb yeah I mean this is like a testament to the film not working at this point because right. lots of stuff happens that's not believable right but it all it fits all goes into the world that we're being presented exactly. so I think this is a testament that you start to ask yourself why would this cardinal why would this why would the saint be at Jep's terrace? <laughs> yeah. Proves that something is no longer clicking yeah. in this in this movie. It almost feels like it's almost a studio note to be like, "Hey, we can't end this on like, hey, we have something to look forward to." It's too that's too open ended for the audience. The studio is like, and and that's probably not the case, but it does feel shoehorned in there. It feels not of the voice that we've spent and watched for the past hour and a half. But this part also for me, it's not well done. It seems like uh, shot by a different DP, directed by a different director. Even the acting doesn't really um, stand out as it should, which I accept because I love everything I've seen before. And again, I, I really like the last 30 seconds, which at the end is what you remember the most about the film. So what you just said is also true, that even though my butt was a little bit sore, in this in this very last 15 minutes of the film the the last minute of the film pays Absolutely. off in a way that it you Absolutely. forgive i mean uh, so to talk if we talk yeah. about the real ending i mean that's again like right. jeb by himself a shot that is very similar to this uh to this for the first shot of the film and then you have a similar style of close-up for the ending so somehow same type of shot but in one he's surrounded by the cows and so many people and so in another one there's just him his voiceover the sound of the sea overnight he's alone but finally he can stand it finally he can handle the solitude because he has something with him to forward to and you know uh, to feel the void he's been living i love it very well put one of the backbones of this podcast is how films age over time and we, we've discussed at length what, what metrics we use to assess this. The, the metrics are open-ended. I, I feel like this film has a very high replay value, and it gives me more back every time I give the two hours and 20 minutes to it. So for that, I think it's aging well, and I think it's going to continue to age well. Uh, I'd love to hear your your guys' take on it. Totally to your point, I think the rewatchability of this movie seems to be limitless. I happened to watch it the night before my birthday, and particularly I could see myself watching, this is a great birthday movie. Of just <laughs> If I watch this like every 10th birthday, I feel like I'd be more wise. I do think it's interesting just like talking about a foreign film, because at least in the States, because I think it being in a foreign language automatically hurts its viewership in the states just like from that barrier of entry of like hey you're reading subtitles that's no barrier entry to me but i'm many people hear that's a foreign language film and they and they don't access it so uh, it is i i think that is the sole reason this isn't a super ubiquitous movie in the states is because it's in a foreign language but um uh, other than that i think it's 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 
a classic and only going to get better with age. Gio, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I totally agree with you guys. Also because I think it's already an, an iconic film, uh, even though it's fairly recent. People are still talking about it. People will keep talking about it. And I can't agree with you more when you guys said that the more you watch it and the more you will watch it again um, in the future. So definitely, yeah, I agree. I agree with, with you. Another backbone of the Oscar one too is we, we like to think of ourselves as a film discovery podcast. So hopefully leading a few listeners to check out a movie that they might've forgotten about, or they, they might've never heard about. So I'd like to take the opportunity to ask Gio um, for a few film hmm. recommendations for listeners that might have seen The Great Beauty and enjoyed it. Anything else you want to you wanna throw out there? Let me just maybe promote my, my own country and I'd like to maybe suggest three Italian films. One is still from Paolo Sorrentino. Unfortunately, it's not as famous as it should be. It's a movie he made when he was just 34 years old. Went to Cannes, um, started his career, basically his international career. The title is Consequences of Love. I will second. All all of these films we'll put in our show notes. Okay. So people can find them. And I will also just quickly um, second this recommendation. Perfect. Then I'd like to recommend I Go Back in the Days. This is my favorite Italian filmmakers ever. It's named Elio Petri. The guy won the Academy Award for Best International Feature Film in 1971 with the movie Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. This is one of my favorite films ever. Long title, great movie, 1970. You will not regret to watch this film. And then the third one, I like to go in 2014. It's a good watch. It's called Black Soul, Anime Nere. It's interesting because it's a gangster film, but like uh, no one else ever. So it doesn't really spectacularize mafia uh, like Hollywood like to do. Also, this specific movie is shot in Calabria, so it speaks about a different type of uh, mafia, not the Sicilian mafia, which is like the infamous one in American TV shows and movies. But this is the type of mafia broad people don't know much about it, but it's very powerful and still active. It's a slow-paced film, but the scenery is incredible. It's shot in places where you would never even imagine Italian territory can have. So I guess it would be an interesting watch for foreign audience. Great. Again, you can find all of these titles in our show notes for this episode. Well, that just about does it. Thank you again, Gio, for, for coming on and lending your, your insight. Max, it's been great. As always, I've been Nick. And <laughs> Thank you guys for having me with you. It's, uh, it, was, uh, you it, guys, was, it was fun. You guys are Thank my, you very much. You guys are my favorite people to talk about movies with. So I hope <laughs> yeah. we do it again soon. Okay. Likewise, my friend. Likewise, Likewise, absolutely. As always, if you like what you you heard, give us a follow on wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact us at theoscarwentu at gmail.com if you have any thoughts whatsoever about what you heard today or in any previous episode. Or if you would, if you have a film in mind that we should cover, it can be from 1994, which is the year we're about to cover. Or if you have an emergency of your own, we'd like to hear it. And if it strikes a chord, we may just cover it on the podcast. We are on Instagram and Twitter at the Oscar Went To Pod. Give us a follow for information and just some fun content. But above all else, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Thank you so much, in the Max. 90s. Geo. I'll see you in Bye the 90s. Bye, guys. Baby. Thank you. See you in the 90s. <laughs> Have a good night.